Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Cynthia Oka, Jeffrey Bernard Allen, Ricky Laurentiis, Seema Reza, and Vincent Toro. You will now hear Cynthia Oka provide introductions. brick walls of the penitentiary are anointed. Thank you so much for being here on Saturday morning. And I know a lot of you are probably hungover, so thank you. Uh, My name is Cynthia, and I'm a poet and also a community organizer, and I was really kind of inspired um, in the mid of last year to begin to thinking about a concept for this panel. Um, And then I was hearing all around me people talking about these crazy times. And also sending a lot of letters and receiving a lot of letters signed in rage. So there was, there was like something that felt, it felt like an aura, you know, um, a kind of solidarity that was being forged or communicated through, yeah, through kind of this, uh, through this emotion of rage and, um, and a sense of, like, feeling crazy uh, at the same time. So that's where kind of the, I started thinking about madness uh, and how that has been so linked to our creativity um, and also what's happening in our political context right now. And we have this amazing panel of folks who are going to go and explore that um, even deeper. I just wanted to offer some words of uh, context. Um, you know, it's, not, it's a concept that's clearly not unfamiliar, I think, to poets and writers, to artists. Um, it's part of the idea that one thinks or feels or believes or acts in contravention to what's perceived as common or dominant sense, right? So Emily Dickinson uh, wrote uh, in one of her poems, much madness is divinest sense to a discerning eye, much sense the starkest madness. So there's this sense of estrangement (laughs) from kind of the world that is around you um, but I, but it's also connected, right, to uh, and and linked and layered by systemic experiences of oppression, societal, cultural, political, legal denials and distortions of experiences that do not um, that don't validate or reproduce the status quo, <coughs> and these experiences typically belong to people of color, to colonized and displaced people, to queer people, to women, um, to survivors of all forms of systemic violence. And these sites of distortion can feel like they're inside of us or all around us or both at the same time. And I think that's what was being flagged for me when I was seeing, you know, like, in solidarity and rage. Um, and the question of madness is therefore inseparable kind of from what's real, the, from the question of what is real, what's true, or rather what we can believe, 
um, are permitted to believe, are encouraged to believe, and consequently who we are. And there are these cataclysmic changes right now happening all around us in our political and social environment. Uh, We have assaults on established facts uh, and the means of proving facts. We have attacks happening on the press, on the establishment, home for artists and writers like the NEA that people have been hearing about, on education, on women, on migrants, on black people, on people of color, not just here, but all all across the globe. And, you know, I mean, that's to say that there are attacks on particular communities and the means of those communities because the arts has been so important for these communities, right, to communicate and establish the validity of our lives and our existence. And there's a mainstream unveiling happening of the depth of white violence, fear, hatred, perhaps self-hatred, and xenophobia at the foundation of this country. And its fundamental connection to hatred towards women, towards queer and trans people, and an orientation of, you know, unbridled capitalist greed um, that on one hand validates and deepens the reality that people of color have always known, have always experienced, and at the same time creating a powerful dissonance for a lot of people who might have believed that America while imperfect, has been bending towards justice this whole time, right? So it's like there's this moment of (coughs) cracking that that I feel is happening psychically in this nation. So I was, when I was thinking about like how to kind of bring together the the various perspectives that these amazing folks have, um, are bringing today, uh, I, I revisited the work of France on, and he was a, for those who don't know, he was a writer, um, a psychiatrist, uh, he was a revolutionary in the Algerian War for Independence, and significantly, he was a student of the poet Aimé Césaire. And in The Wretched of the Earth, he, was, he talked about the duty of the colonized poet to clearly define the people, the subject of his creation. And he wrote, we cannot go resolutely forward unless we first realize our alienation, he said. And he talked about the need to reunite with the people in this zone of hidden fluctuation. And I love that phrase so much. I was like, that actually feels exactly kind of like the the madness that we are talking about. um, (coughs) And so with that in mind, um, we're going to hear from these great folks, and how we're going to do it is they're going to take turns reading uh, for about seven minutes each, and then afterwards we're going to transition to a a panel format, and then ask um, them each some questions, and then open it up for you all to also engage them in questions or dialogue or comments. Uh, And please note, just in case uh, there's anyone who might have to leave early, that Ricky is going to be doing a book signing um, in the book fair at the U of Pitt. Uh, what is it called? Booth. So right after this, right, Ricky? Yes. Um, so I will repeat that information, but take note. 
heads of black boys on mopeds. Atahualpa warned us. Irigoyen warned us. Of the arrival of swindler, supreme, rapist in chief, all bow to the loudest, the rudest. Glamorize this new barbarism, alt-lynching, alt-misogyny, alt-fascism, safe space demolition. May the roofies wear off before we wake on a catwalk auction block dressed in shackles by couture. And um, this is their recovery. It's um, a piece called Vos Populi for the Maroon. In, uh, in, in the Taino culture, the indigenous tribes of Puerto Rico, um, in, their, um, uh, in their ceremonies, in their performance ceremonies of the, of the areto, all the poems were recited in the voice of the people. There was a we, there was no I. Um, and I think that that's where the recovery is, in us gathering and our being together. So this is a folks populi for the maroon, and it's in honor of the history of mass movements that help create social change. Hopefully this will heal this morning. Like a charm of goldfinches, we will gather... We will gather at the sea crest and inside toppled cubicles, drawing upon this horizon of shady bank tellers and chemical weapons depots, as if drawn toward the coast by the sheen of a lighthouse. We will gather upon the terraces of a crumbling metropolis and along the dunes of Atacama, Mojave, Kalahari. We will gather and reverberate, goaded by the grief of limbless beggars in Fresno and cancer-stricken housewives in Beijing, and we will know that we are being watched, that this is no network production. We are being watched and we are being followed, and so all at once we lead the lost in a rumba. And we will not rumble, shirking the title of rabble, we will gather the rubble from the sewer grates of Palestine and Fukushima, of Detroit and La Paz, and we will tether the scintilla of plywood and plastic into a hope-shrouded oasis. We will gather. We will gather, not like mold or like flies, but like tidal waves or like skate punks. Skate punks dark sliding the rim of a jilted pool, and we will gather to consider how the scent of baked bread can travel across epics when no barricades are raised along fairways and boulevards. We will gather, summoned by our hunger. We will share blankets and soup with our enemies. We will remind the unwitting that all are deserving of honey and soap. Together we will carve up this morning with candles and canticles. The splintering of our bones by SWAT teams will spark the loveless to sing. We will gather along twisted phone lines. We will be nameless and formless, a bog of glistening skin calling for a terminal armistice. We will gather in Selma and Port-au-Prince and Monrovia and Manila. We will bind ourselves like cloth over a fevered chest and we will break nothing when we leave we will float across courtyards like a warm sponge over a sore shin. We will be a shore of sin, shameless, carousing, a flesh-tinted mandala of static, bribing the sky with the promise that we will return each day until fear is in need of hospice. And we will come bearing incense and peach pie 
And whenever the wounds of injustice are salted in our towns and favelas, we will return again to the squares of Tiananmen and Taksim, of Tahrir and Trafalgar, of Bolivar and Union, like barnacles or fluorescent algae. We will gather, we will gather, we will gather. Thank you. Our next reader is Jeffrey Renard Allen. He's the author of five books of fiction and poetry, most recently in the novel Song of the Shank. He teaches in the creative writing program at University of Virginia. He's received many accolades for his work, including a Whiting Award and a Guggenheim Fellowship. Please welcome Jeffrey. Thank you all for coming. Can you hear me? You can't hear me? I wear hearing aids, so if you could use the microphone a little closer. Uh, this one doesn't move. Uh, can, I, can I actually lift it up? Is that okay? Better? Uh, that's better, right? Yeah, okay. Um, so thank you all for coming. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read a, 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 a section of a story that, that's in the, um, current issue of Oxford American Magazine. So um, a number of months ago, the, one of the editors there asked me if I would write something for the annual music issue, uh, which was this year was going to be about uh, blues music. And so um, I uh, decided to write a story where I imagined a friendship between um, Jimi Hendrix and the painter Francis Bacon. And this was a this was an idea that grew out of the fact that I was, I've always been interested in the work of both of these people and that they were also uh, in the same places a lot. So, uh, for example, as many of you may know that Jimi Hendrix left. Uh, he played in R&B bands for years and stuff, and then in 1966 he left to go to London, which is where he made his um, success, became successful and famous, and then he came back to America. So Bacon was in London, and um, a lot of people in those days also liked to hang out in Tangier, which, of course, is on the African continent. So Jimmy and uh, Bacon were both there as well. So um, one of the things that interests me about Jimi Hendrix is I remember um, I first heard of him when I was 16. This was many years ago. Uh, And at the time, most black people, uh, you know, I would say most black people in those days didn't know who he was. And the ones who did know who he was didn't really think much about him. So I remember, in fact... uh, I was um, well. I'll just tell this one story. He played it. He played in Harlem. He gave like a benefit concert or something in Harlem. Uh, so he started playing, and people started throwing eggs at him or something like that. And then it, it kind of pissed him off. And apparently, he like played the best he ever played his entire life, and everyone you know, was clapping. But the the point being that um, you know he was an innovator who took the music in all kinds of different directions. And for me, one of the things that interests me about him is the fact that his life shows that blackness is not limitation, that being black in America is not limitation, uh, that, that your art can be a way of, a way of um, breaking out of any, ba- uh, uh, any kinds of boxes that people want to put you in. So w- without further ado, I'll just read. 
So this is from, from the end of the story. Uh, at a party, let me see. At a party, Jimmy gets into an argument with Monica. He believes in free love. She doesn't. And she storms out, causing a scene in front of his friends. Not the first time. He goes after her. The argument pushes the two of them along. The sky gets into it, too, and begins to color up. The late sun streaking across London for miles. He follows her for the, low, for the slow length of a homeward mile until he loses sight of her, a steady vanishing into air. Summer warmth withdraws from the September evening. How else can it be? A day comes in a month in a season, and you wish it were some other month in another season. The days in their different lights. A car honks twice at him. His shadow slides along these white houses, a black blur, like little structures that always look sad in the falling light of sunset. His shoes hollow up sound from the cobblestones. The cobblestones themselves look like the bald heads of monks. He rounds a corner, and the street starts sloping downhill, cobblestones moving under him like an avalanche of skulls. And now the dark comes on, heavy pieces of the settling darkness locking in place. The weather in the flat and the weather outside the flat are the same. Jimmy makes a cold trek through the darkness to the bedroom. The telephone is ringing, but he lets the ringing go on while he searches for a cigarette, rummaging through clothes and closets and cupboards. He hears Monica take the call. No, not now, he says. Tell them I'm not here. Resumes his search. Not one damn cigarette anywhere. Imagine that. He'll have to wait until morning. Monica hands him a glass of wine, then kills the lights and drops into the edge of the bed, sitting there waiting to see if he will come. Perhaps he should. Then again, why bother? Unspoken things will divide them from now on. He'll pick a fight with her in the morning to push her toward the inevitable. Better that way. He sits down in a chair facing the window on the other side of the room and sips his wine in the dark. The distance between him and Monica throbs on his back. The bedroom doorknob glows like a light bulb in the moonlight, and moonlight turns the bed a milky, bluish white. Everything is still until the sound of his growling stomach interrupts Monica's breathing. Her voice releases into the night. Jimmy, are you there? Where else would he be? His stomach growls, something within wanting out. He should eat anything, whatever is here. Take a few nibbles. He is too thin, his bones pressing against his papery skin. But his mind is on other things. Without trouble or searching, he can see what is inside his head, set deep in a puddle of light, the most loved thing, the odd inner peak. He has ten fingers like candles to tell a story, and he will. Even if the search for sound simmers at a low volume, barely audible, barely felt. He finishes the wine, undresses, and gets into bed, night sealed around him, folds his fingers behind his head, pressing the weight of his wanting into the pillow. The light, vapory sound of breathing rises from his, from his chest. Pure darkness holds up a ceiling fleck with light. He feels his lips move, counts his breath, but sleep streams away from him. Monica murmurs something and curls closer, her small, new, familiar body cradled against his chest and thighs. 
Soon she is pulled back into the blank spell of sleep. Then he starts to hear the cry of a bird from far away. Another night bird answers from far away. Little wing crying, night bird flying. Something light in the long blue night. What has summoned them? He gets out of bed and goes over to the open window, sits down on the windowsill facing a line of trees that ends a long way down the cobblestone street, studies the street gliding downhill and shining slick as a river. Nosy leaves outside try to look in. Okay, so let them look. He reaches down with his fingers, straps his Stratocaster to his body, and starts to play with no amp, doing all he can do. He starts to feel something and leans into the guitar solidly on his own. He's got the opening now and makes a mental recording of it, a song cut loose from his body. Sweet angel, so weary and weak in the blink of an eye. The story of life is how often we fail, but how hard we try. Still the blood is strong and will abide even when we cry. So keep on pushing, keep on pushing till the day we die. Keep on pushing, keep on pushing, baby. He unscraps the guitar and props it against the windowsill. Moonlight wood throwing broken shadows against the wall. He finds the bottle of wine and fills his glass, drinks it, pours another. His fingers are a little stiff, so he inserts them into the glass of wine, lets them root in the warm liquid for a period of time, pulls them out of the glass, then rubs wine over the strings before drinking what little was left. Pours another, drinks, swallows, a backward explosion, intake of breath. Once his fingers feel right, he takes up the guitar again, right hand shaping riffs and chords, left hand plucking the strings, as is his fashion. The notes take hold. The white dots on the neck of the fretboard look like seashells buried in sand, hollow spaces where his touch can venture. He wants to put it all in the song, the way the party got off to a good start and how they were all having a great time until the argument before, uh, I'm sorry, before the party, and before the party, the jam back at the club. But that's where his memory runs dry. Sorry, folks, we're too stoned. We can't make it happen tonight. Had he really been too high to play and just walked off the stage? No, no, that's not how it happened. He had hit one song, two, maybe even a third, before he realized that he was too fuzzy to focus. So then it must have been an actual gig, a concert, not simply a jam. Or as he confused moments, mixing nights, places, and times. So little to hang on. Doesn't remember much except the flashing lights and the noise of sirens and his own voice sounding unreal and the way his fingers trembled when they touched the words of others speaking around him. But what little he does remember... Okay. Okay, all right. But what, but what little he does, remember, he puts into the song, his hands composedly moving. He watches the song grow full of wind and sky and dirt and water, coming and going, rising and falling, one heap of sound. He knows when inflections of the blues mean red house, blue rain, midnight lightning. He knows how to worry chords into the black shape of, of time. He knows how to anchor weight on a string and sink a barbed note into the muddy depths below then bend that string and yank up a struggling catfish, knows how to hoist the entire world to his ear, all that he is listening. He plays until the night blurs into dawn, the new sun, the new sun turning the cool breathing flat into a box of light. 
the light is better this way, ordinary light. And so is Monica, a small white body trembling for balance in the kitchen where she spoons coffee into a pot without the least thought of him. Maybe they will make it after all. Sima Reza is the author of When the World Breaks Open, a memoir in essays and poetry. And she coordinates and facilitates a unique multi-hospital military arts program in Washington, D.C. She's a FONA alum and serves as a council member at large for the Transformative Language Arts Network. Please welcome Sima. Thank you. Who here is still drunk? Me either. Um, I, I'll just open with this poem. When we remember these nights, we will marvel at the quaint optimism of our outrage. These nights, we discovered the need to fold torso to thigh, the ache to curl the children's bodies back into ours, repeal the splitting of cells, refuse the multiplication forward into time. To shrink and fade and vanish, we will remember cracks exposed by black marker bleed when we wrote our lawyers' phone numbers on the ridges inside our wrists, on our son's soft shoulders. These nights, we arrived at one another's doors, leaned like the sides of a ladder, lonely. These nights, we discovered the knives in our lovers' hands and pockets of weakness surrounding us, the irrational tolerance of our allies. These days, our tears refused to clot and we learn to cry sober and straight-faced while pulling levers, pushing buttons, turning the steering wheel. Nobody wails anymore. I began to craft an essay in preparation for this panel at the Istanbul airport. I was on a layover, and it could have been anywhere, right? Um, there are more brown faces as you travel east, but this sort of like the hegemony of consumerism is the exact same specter. Um, you know, Victoria's Secret and Hermes to my left, Philip Morris cartons and Calvin Klein bottles lined up everywhere, glossy, glossy designer sunglasses under light, all of it. And everybody, duty-free, pure consumption. But of course, what's being sold in a place like that, in these larger-than-life posters, no matter how far east you go, the people on the posters have narrow, pale limbs and faces. It's an exclusionary white ideal that leaves everyone feeling continuously not enough. Even the white person cannot achieve that ideal. But her relative proximity to it labels her superior while keeping her hungry and a consumer. 
And I wonder if the consistent failure of our established institutions to protect us and tell us the truth moves more merchandise than those glossy photographs do. Drives consumerism by sparking our thirst for any kind of tangible exchange. To align with the material ideal or a canned ideology is to distance oneself from the insecurity and messiness and chaos of reality, from feeling and responsibility. Muriel Ruckheiser wrote in The Life of Poetry, what is the fear of poetry? To a great extent, it is a fear produced by a mask, by the protective structure society builds around each conflict. The conflict here is a neurotic one, a false conflict based on a supposed antithesis of fact and relationship of inner and outer effectiveness. It is a conflict upheld by the great part of organized society. The fear is a fear of disclosure, but in this instance, of disclosure of oneself to areas within the individual, areas with which he is not trained to deal and which will only bring him to hostile relationships with his complacent neighbor, whose approval he wants. Poetry in the preceding passage could easily be replaced with feeling. I have a latent death wish. I mean, no, that's what I mean. I still buy green bananas and those embarrassingly large packs of toilet paper and I'm working on a manuscript, but lately, every good day that closes without something terrible happening to my children feels like a match I've burned from a finite book. Since he was four, my older son has been being stopped and questioned in the airport because of his name, and then released on account of his sweet child face. He is still sweet and soft-limbed, but recently, he began to shave. He's 5'11 and growing. His name is the same. I don't want to know what's next. Tell me that my fear of what comes next is madness, irrational. Tell me that what I need is Zoloft. If you can convince me of that, you will have convinced me to stop trusting my senses. If you can convince me of that, I may actually go mad with self-loathing. If you convince me of that, I may actually go ahead and kill myself. There's this space, right, between the well provider, facilitator, and the ill the mentally ill person that's kind of a construct, obviously, it's not, it's not real. But to admit that we are not okay, that we are not inherently different from the mentally ill, from those being restrained and subdued and treated like children, is to admit that this sort of suffering is not an anomaly, is not something that can be contained behind the closed doors of mental wards and therapist's office. It makes plain that there are things that cannot be controlled or cured, that at least some of, the, some of the time, these things live within most of us. 
When the lies of our institutions are exposed, think of the child who discovers the truth about Santa. Everyone knows about Santa, right? Um, I didn't want to be the one. How she wonders what other lies are being told to her, and then eventually is convinced to hush, to go on, to go to church, go back to sleep. Don't think too deeply. Most people try feverishly to go back to sleep. But the artist and the survivor of trauma, who is actively grappling with it, has somehow awakened permanently. For us, it can be frustrating and isolating and rage-inducing. We are told that we are mad. Can logical, informed reactions to threatening stimuli be fairly considered madness? And we are encouraged to accept the treatment of madness, the prescribed treatment of madness, which is an industrial model, a number of pills, a number of appointments, driven by what a health insurer will pay. The modern medical model is incredibly disempowering overall. But nowhere is this more evident than in the field of mental health. I believe there's a value to writing. Our writing, of course, as as writers who are making sense of the world, but also to teaching and encouraging other people to write, to return the power of critical thinking to people who are disenfranchised or convinced that they are mad, that they don't have a right to think, they don't have a right to trust what they feel. The first essay most American students are assigned is the five-paragraph persuasive essay. Haven't we all written that? You pick a position, and then you defend it, right? At the beginning, you pick the position. You've already decided. The most valuable tool that we have, rigorous thought, is not taught through writing, which is the best, right? Writing is the most rigorous way of thinking there is. All, and all of the writing to heal literature that I've read comes with a warning, right? If you really think you're going to change your mind, you might have to, you know, change the way that you live, God forbid. Um, but to, re, to return to people that empowerment of being able to trust their thoughts, to write without that sort of intention of like, I'm going to write this thing about this position that I already have, um, and to be willing to change requires that we trust that through even as they express things that we don't agree with, that will hold them. Um, Dr. Cornell West writes about a politics of conversion which requires that we hold that space for people, that we allow them to change their own minds. Because we don't change our minds as fully by reading as we do by writing.
Ricky Laurentis is the author of Boy with Thorn, selected by Terrence Hayes for the 2014 Cave Canem Poetry Prize. His honors include fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Civitella Ranieri Foundation in Italy, and a Ruth Lilly Poetry Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation. And he's going to sign books after this at the U of Pitt um, booth in the book fair. <coughs> Conditions for Southern Gothic. Therefore, my head was kingless. I was a head alone moaning in a wet black field. I was like any of those deserted slaves whose graves are just the pikes raised for their heads, reshackled, blue and plain as fear. All night I whistled at a sky that mocked me that fluently changed its grammar as if to match desire in my eye. My freedom is possible, it said, as if my torn-off head in that bed swamped and whelming then with water had one wish, and it did, to think stranger stuff, to break that boring need to always have a shadow trail its maker such that one, the shadow snaps, rising to kiss the head, two, the kiss lands, the head flies up in airy revolt, Three cracked from the head come the crows of its thinking. Four, three crows move in minstrelsy against the night. Five, and the head still singing. Last night, a Negro was asked. Who among us was made to scratch a myth? Speak. If God made us in his image, it was the first failure of the imagination. Um, I'm only going to read two more poems, but I wanted to say quickly, I've also been in the airport in Istanbul, and I walked around. It was my first time really um, in that part of the world. Um, and seeing those faces on the wall, juxtaposed to the bodies moving in the room, is completely alienating. It's completely um, to re-remember that you are a sort of a colonial subject moving around the world, and there, there are people trying to occupy you and push you out of your own body. And it was in that very airport that I started an essay um, I, was, I was, at that time, coming from Palestine. I had a trip to go to Palestine. Um, and I've been thinking about the imagination, which is why I wanted to read that poem. Um, and the imagination, I think, is this paradox that is responsible for all the ways that we harm each other. And I mean that literally. Um, someone imagined the Second Amendment. Someone imagined the gun. Someone imagined Guantanamo. Um, this is why Black Mirror is kind of brilliant, because it shows the way we imagine terror and her harm to each other. But it's also responsible for the ways that we can recover and we can heal and we can love, um, if we can only use that power for that. Um, and it's responsible for the, the erotic as well. So I'm going to read two more poems, um, kind of going towards that line of, of the erotic. Um, and this is called Beautiful Bottom, Beautiful Shame. The way he writhed beneath the other man argued his loneliness. But he wasn't just a blank measure waiting to sound. However much an O his mouth made, he wasn't just an O. Thrusting back up against what is almost like a finger, though it isn't. Always needing to be touched like a finger to be held. I'm lonely. My waist cinched inward like some vintage Japanese fan, the clever blade of my back working inch by inch toward a pleasure half mine, 
the way fire pleases, wax pleases. What does possession mean? No, really, tell me. At this moment, someone beside myself can feel how many times I shudder. Asked if I like it, I like it. I speak out those three syllables, mess myself. The point is, I think, to empty. It feels good. To be two men interlocked in a sentence still forming. We dance, the dancer says, I want you, come closer, come in me. No, really, he said as a whisper, boy, you want to be possessed. Because you see, he had been removed from his body then, per usual. His beauty, like a talisman offered, his woundedness revealed. This is sort of a statement I wrote about that. I wrote that poem wanting to explore the woundedness, to journey inside my own interior, risk, privilege. I'm saying that I aim to interrogate the specter and spectacle of the penetrated male body or male-appearing body, to explore the linguistic possibilities embedded in the subjectivity not discursively, not discursively understood as penetrable. Jonathan Kemp argues in his book, which you should go read, it's called The Penetrated Male. I love it. <laughs> For this body to accept penetration is to essentially, quote, abdicate the phallus to submit to a masochism marked by a loss of masculinity through castration, to have one membership rescinded. In short, he argues, that the penetrated male becomes, quote, a symbolic woman. And the question I'll raise for us today at this time, is that madness? And why should it be? And what to the notions of misogyny, heteronormativity, and I'll also add race, underwrite that possibility. And again, I mean, why is it mad to be a woman, or symbolic or otherwise? Why is it mad to be penetrated? Where does madness go? How does it work if we mind even subvert, and subvert this kind of symbolism and the rhetorical logic that supports it? In thinking about the apparent masochism of the penetrated male body, what if we give thought to the pleasure sometimes inherently understood in such masochism, to cross-dressing, to leather, what if we move into the visible again or make obvious the ecstatic male body, a body marked by its expression of physical pleasure, realizing, as Kemp does, that this very act carries with it the danger of placing the body above the mind. That is, the danger of privileging feeling over thinking, of potentially canceling out reason, which is the secret thing that's being talked about when we talk about, I think, madness. Reason, one could say, is a colonial construct. Discards Voltaire, Bacon, but also Washingtonian, Jeffersonian. It is, a, it is a founding father coming to me saying, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, but to look upon the particularities of my flesh, my body, and to accept it not as man, and therefore not equal. Patriarchal racist logic affords and covers some bodies in prestige, privilege and mobility, which I think today I want to say is freedom. Reason, reason gives men their superiority not over, not over just women or the body or even nature itself, but even over the ability to name the world the world. And importantly, reason changes. Somehow today it is reasonable that a man who doesn't even read more than a one-page security briefing should sit behind the very desk of the man who declared this country independent. I'm talking about Trump. Right? <laughs> That's reasonable, apparently. 
And so what if I, if we gave all that up? Not necessarily to deny the privileges that we may legitimately have. I don't want to deny having male body privilege. But in an effort to imagine new possibilities, new genders, new ways bodies can exchange knowledge and feeling. What if I gave up reason? What if I went unnatural? The effect I'm suggesting, I think, the danger or the work is to go mad. I want to not only take up Helene Cessu's charge to Ecretois or to write you, your body must make itself understood. I want not only to, as Audre Lorde implies, use the erotic firsthand, but I want to imagine a new body, a new sort of 21st century masculinity, if that's even the world word, not relying upon older binaries of dominance versus submission, civilized versus savage, body, mind, etc. A new lyric that arises from behind, in media's rest, offbeat, fragmentary, filling, and pressing itself into the reader as one hopes a relatable music. I've mentioned before these notions of race that they play a part, although they may not obviously or visibly. Um, and I think that's because race is for better and certainly for worse, a way of relating. In this way, an exploration of the penetrated black male body is especially significant to me and to the last poem I'll read. Um, indeed, the coherence of the argument surrounding the ecstatic penetrated male body becomes kind of interestingly disrupted, even contradicted when, say, the anus is replaced for a blood wound, the penis is exchanged for a bullet, and the phallus becomes a policeman's pistol. All of that is penetration, I think, or I'm seeing that at 9 a.m. tomorrow, this morning, isn't it? If we think through the lynchings of Will Brown and Emmett Till historically as examples to the more recent tragedies and the murders of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, some questions do surface. How does a black man's historic relationship to a mob, vigilante, and now police state under which his body has continuously been penetrated either by acts of surveillance, such as stop and frisk, by microaggressions or direct physical violence, how does all of this complicate the notions of the impenetrable male body? And what happens if that black male body is also queer? Where does agency and choice live in this equation? Does it afford mobility or freedom? On what ground will that body rest, whether stood up alive or lying down dead? So in that respect, I want to end with a newer poem um, that speaks to erotics, but also to the situation in Ferguson and Mike Brown. I probably don't have to remind you, but in 2014, Mike Brown was murdered by um, the officer Daniel, Darren Wilson. And th these are two things that he said that always stood in my mind. This is Darren Wilson speaking. He described Brown as having the most aggressive face. That's the only way I can describe it. It looks like a demon. That's how angry it looked. As he is coming toward me, Wilson continued, I kept telling him to get on the ground. He doesn't. I shoot a, shit, I shoot a series of shots penetration. I don't know how many I shot, I just know I shot it. He was on the ground. And of course, in November, a grand jury in St. Louis County accepted that testimony and exonerated it, and declined to indict Darren Wilson for the murder of Michael Brown. So I will conclude with this poem called Continuance. And thank you. Continuance, Ferguson, Missouri, 2014. Forever here, Mr. Dark, and tricking me, steaming from a manhole in Missouri, or else you're damp between the motion of the trees, revealing the breezy discourse of those trees, black sound. 
I can see now how everything I've learned of you is wrong. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I actually wanted to, uh, yeah, I think there, there are some good follow-up questions that, um, that I'm, I want to pose to these folks. Uh, are there any immediate comments from the audience at this moment? All right, cool. Uh, I wanted to come back to Jeff. Uh, I'm really interested in sort of like your, I think it's really interesting that you're exploring sort of like the moments. Uh, It's great to know that you're working on a book on Jimi Hendrix. Uh, But previously to this, in Song of the Shank, there's a, uh, it feels like a precedent, right, also in terms of reimagining Thomas Green Wiggins uh, or Blind Tom, who was a slave and a musical prodigy in the late 1800s. Um, And I'm just interested in sort of like thinking about this moment right now, uh, which all of you have addressed in in various ways uh, in in terms of the dissonance, the ways uh, in which we have to try to make sense to choose what ground, um, to re-choose. It's like to figure out all over again what ground we're going to lie on and what is the role of fiction uh, to you when you think about reconstructing these characters in the context of a time that has passed? What kind of understanding is made possible from that kind of fictional um, orientation towards the moment? Okay. I'm, at, uh, I'm not working on a book about Jimi Hendrix, I should say that, by the way. It, that was a story, but... Um, uh, but in some ways, I am working on a book. It's a kind of continual project, meaning that one of the reasons I was interested in Blind Tom um, is because he reminded me of Jimi Hendrix. He was like a, kind of like a 19th century Jimi Hendrix. So uh, just to say this, I think one of the... I often think like the, the one of the central problems of America is just uh, our uh, willingness or... Un, um, when I say our, I mean the country. The country's unwillingness to accept its history, its past, and to um, create this mythology that scapegoats others. So, I mean, you know, what is the reality of this country? This is a, the reality of this country is one where essentially genocide, I mean, genocide was, was you know, committed against Native Americans, right, uh, for the purpose of taking their land. And so this genocide in particular began after the Civil War when the country was united by the by the railroad. Um, and this is a time when Tom, so Tom was born in a slave in Georgia in 1849 and began giving concerts when he was six years old. And uh, he was actually, you know, a slave, as I say, owned by someone. And... Um, so, um, he, he, you know, what's, what's interesting to me about it is he became, he was probably the most famous pianist of the 19th century, but um, most people have never heard of him today. 
And so one of the things I one of the things that happened is because he was labeled uh, autistic savant, or in his own time he was called an idiot savant, um, and because the, this country's had always had a, a problem with the idea of black genius and black creativity, uh, and you know these various other kinds of things. The, the point is that. Uh, you know, Tom has been erased from musical history, really. I mean, right? So, you know, he's a savant, so he's obviously he's not creative. This is a thinking. So this kind of historical erasure is uh, one of the things I'm saying. If you look at his life, it, that kind of historical erasure surrounding him is just part of a larger historical erasure about our own history in this country, um, and uh, this whole scapegoating of people and um, all these kinds of things. And in a similar fashion, like it, just quickly. So, um, and this was kind of accidental, but, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Francis Bacon never met each other. Uh, so I was just imagining this in a story. But, you know, uh, a lot of people don't know and remember that when Jimi Hendrix played at Woodstock in 1970, uh, he received the highest amount of money ever paid it paid a performer for a single performance. I mean, it was like $175,000, which speaks to, like, uh, the fact, you know, he was the most famous musician in some ways in the world, you know, in 1970, because he was paid this amount of money. Um, in a similar fashion, you know, Francis Bacon was the, was the most successful painter of his own time. You know, he, he was getting a million pounds of, per paintings and all these kinds of things. But so the, the point being, like, there are these kinds of historical erasures uh, that define our country, and um, I think I, I think I asked, answered the question. <laughs> so that's one of the ways that fiction can address these things. This ratio. Thanks, Jeff. Um, Vincent, the theme of <coughs> empire and capitalism, racism, really emerged in sort of conversation and convergence in your home and your poetry. And uh, kind of building off of in relation and building off of what I asked Jeff, can you talk about the strategies that you use um, in terms of poetry and theater, your educational work, to kind of crack open these layers of madness that it seems like we're sitting underneath? Uh, yeah, so I think. Um, you know, I think I, I mentioned that poetry is kind of belligerently anti-capitalist mm -hmm. when we were talking. Um, and I think that that's what always felt empowering to me, is that for me, poetry comes from this place that's not like the official story. Um, corporations, empires, governments um, use media outlets and use, they spend a lot of money to give you an official story and frame dialogues for you. And we all end up talking about the things they want us to talk about and think in the ways that even those of us who think we're progressive and radical, you spend enough time with a TV on, you're, you're repeating names that they want you to repeat. You're talking about shows and ideas and products they want you to think about. Um, and so, like, there are, like, those things are sanctioned in boardrooms, and they're decided, and they're infused with an agenda, even, like, the pop stars you love so much and the shows you love so much. Whereas poetry is coming from the bottom. It's coming from this other place. You don't need any money to produce poetry. You don't even need a paper and pen if you go back to the oral tradition. 
right? It's incredibly radical in this way that a singular person with an idea can construct a lyric in their head and, and speak back to the narrative that's being given to them. And it's always how I've always approached poetry. I think even when I was 17 and didn't really know I was a poet and I was like just writing really bad rhymes in my head because I thought I wanted to be a rapper in my notebook rather, um, is that what I was speaking against was like the bullies in my school, the authoritarian masculine uh, mannerisms and idea of my dad. Um, like, I was already speaking in those terms before I knew what it was. Like, that's what the poetry gave me. And if you look at the history of poetry in places like Latin America, um, that's how poets used it. Roque Doltan, Leonor Gama, Daisy Zamora, Ernesto Cardenal, these are people that used the, the pen and poetry in order to speak to powers, to colonial powers, and now to corporate powers. So for me, like, when I write, I'm always responding to um, that official story, whatever's being mandated by the screens that we're pretty much required to watch, watch right now. And also I'll say this too is that um, because one of the things they want you to do in capitalism, it's a kind of double speak. They want to simplify, right? It's a Twitter world. Everything should be produced in 140 characters or less. You should be able to sell a product. You should be able to put something in a category and oversimplify it. That what poetry allows me to do too is to is to like just totally crack that open and look at the complications, not see things as a binary, right? We're always imposed binaries and binaries don't really exist. The world is much more complicated than that. So I think that's what poetry does for me. It allows me to like speak back to power and I don't need money and resources to do it. I can go right to the middle of the street there and recite my poem. Um, and it also allows me to like really cri critically look back at what power wants me to feel and how they want mm. me to think. Thank you. That's really interesting. Um, it feels like uh, both of you are talking. There's a, yeah, there's like a, a sort of pushback against erasure that's happening in kind of different timelines. Um, and I wanted to kind of pivot to Seema and Ricky on this side. Uh, Seema, you were talking about critical thinking being a kind of like responsibility that you... Uh, that's really necessary. This idea of like really creating space for people to change their own minds, um, even when they believe something so virulently hostile to what we believe in. And you actually work with a really interesting, uh, with with a unique population, given particularly kind of like where you're coming from. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how your writing practice? Um, the memoir and the poetry, how that intersects with this kind of construction of a critical thinking practice in that group, in the groups that you work with. Yeah. Um, my, can you guys hear me? My, my personal practice of writing um, memoir and poetry is how I survive doing this work, right? And sort of absorbing really hostile feelings sometimes in the rooms that I'm in. There's a lot of people who um, dislike me on site, right? I work with uh, people who are active duty military, who probably at least five of my groups each week. So I spend between, you know, eight and 10 hours each week with people who are treatment directed to be with me and don't necessarily like it at the beginning. Right, just on site, 
by my name. I'm an artist. And then I'm like, and now I'm going to make you cry, right? And so it's like there's a, a lot that you absorb from that and take in. Um, and so my writing practice has been essential for my survival of that um, work. But also I've really learned that nothing anybody does or says is really about me in that space. Um, and the converse is also true. That when I am getting really angry and like flipped up into rage by something that somebody says, it's not really about them. You know, like like uh, Vincent was just saying, there are things they want us to feel. There, you know, there's a certain level they want us to operate at, and if we can start to deconstruct that through our poetry and through our writing, and be like, whoa, what is this really about? Then that power is taken from the sort of, like, you know, everybody be angry. It's like, wait, no. Um, so I don't know if that answered the question. I kinda... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and Ricky, uh, so it feels, uh, can you build off of this idea of, like, the, um, the agency that you were talking about, about exploring and, where is the agency right now in this moment where there is such a collision of, um, it's almost like even the, the concepts of penetrability that you were talking about, they feel very dichotomous, right? They feel like violent towards each other, but they are together. So how, um, how has writing kind of created new possibilities for you in terms of like, if we're talking about this idea of we're being told to feel something, things are erased so that we don't know how to feel towards them. Um, what is made possible by this exploration that you're doing? Madness. What's new, what are the new emotional possibilities? Madness. Um. Uh, a good friend of mine, Samad Sharif, uh, brought me to new ideas and understandings of the of um, the didact, of the role of the didacticism in sort of poetry, and like, why why do we run away from this notion that poems shouldn't teach or shouldn't instruct? Right? You know, we go to school presumably to be instructed, and sometimes that's indoctrination, and sometimes that's not. Um, so anyway, that's a that's a kind of a long way of saying that I've been thinking about. That and about my word for that is argument. Um, and so you see how reason and how all of these things are spiraling in my head. Um, so I can say in terms of my own practice, I, found, I find great um, relief, I want to say is the word. I don't know. And relief is not always to be trusted. But I find great relief right now in, in the notion that I can make, I can argue for the world that I want to see on the page. Um, uh, but I know I'm doing it in English. <laughs> like I know that they're like they're like colonial. Like the very language itself is dripped with blood. So how do I? I don't want to sort of ignore that. I don't want to dismiss that. I don't want to ignore the fact that we can all just walk a couple more blocks and we'll be at the White House and there would be this stupid man at this desk doing stupid things. I, I, it's not the. T I don't care. I'm being very frank because it's not time for coyness. It's time for frankness. Um, but I. I at the same time, there are like lots of um, privileges, I guess, attached is one way we can think about it, but there are lots of 
it feels like um, tripwire. Like as you're walking, you can also you can fall a lot. So what I'm saying is that I get a lot of um, relief from this notion that I can on a piece of paper to Vincent's point. Um, it doesn't really cost a lot to write a poem, right? Necessarily, you have to. It costs you to live, right? But to, once you're alive, and presumably at a place where you can find the space. Uh, I mean, I'm writing on the back of a receipt right now, so like that's not a lot of material resources. And on that receipt, I could argue for the world that I want possible, and that's the agency. That's the ground that I'm choosing. That's I'm thinking of recovery as literally to cover again, right? I can cover again the same ground, so I can go back to. Um, uh, bacon. I can go back to Jeffersonian, you know, logic and say, no, you're wrong. Because he said that for, about me. I mean, he made the word belittle to describe black people's skulls. That's what my friend Sophia Sinclair told me that, citing my sources. Um, you know, and so like if you can create a word to describe the, the skulls of black people as a way to reason why he should own them, etc. then I can come back and make my own real words. And, you know, I, can, I should feel to have the agency. You know, if Darren Wilson had the agency to say that he's a demon and I'm going to kill him, you know, I should have the agency to at least as a poem to kill Darren Wilson. I'm going to be very frank. At least in a poem. At least in a poem. That's where I am this morning, right? I will continue with the sentence, right? Because it's being recorded. But you know, like, like that's that's where I can, and that that gives me great relief. Now, is that enough? I don't know. I don't know. I think that's actually a really great question for all of us to kind of wrestle with as writers, as um, makers of language. So, with that, uh, we have we are at time. And if there are, if there's like one or two questions, then we may be able to address it. But otherwise, thank you so very much for being with us on Saturday morning on the last day of AWP. Yeah, you are troopers. <laughs> yes, you are troopers. Thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.com.